Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen. Buckle up. We don't have time to waste, so buckle up. Let's go. Get to Titus 2 quickly. Here we go. If you're a note taker, you can use that QR code, or you can go to fbcdan.com slash notes, and you can have my notes and email them to you. It'll help you go along, especially if you're out there live streaming. It'll help you see what's on the screen at all times. So not a lot of fancy introductions today, not a, fancy, not a bunch of fancy lead-ins, because it's already 11.35, and I like to preach for a long time. So we're going to jump right into that, dude, right off the bat. Um, so again, with Titus 2, uh, we're in a series on real talk, tackling hard issues. We tackled racism last week. We're tackling addiction this week. I, th I feel like it's kind of ramping up as we go on. I feel like I'm going to be fired before this series is over with. But I'm comfortable in that because I feel like I'm doing what the Lord's leading me to do, even though I don't really want to be, but it may happen. So what is addiction? Jo Dr. Joseph Gerstein, he's a physician in Massachusetts, says, When people cling to activities despite negative effects, it generally indicates addictive behavior. That's what we're digging into today. Uh, a lot of the technical stuff that I'll get into today comes from RBC Ministries. Uh, called, they did a thing called the Discovery Series. Two men, Tim Jackson and Jeff Olson, uh, wrote a long kind of study on uh, when, we just, when we just can't stop. So a lot of the technical stuff comes from that. I want to give them credit and props for that. So let's dig into Titus. Read these first four, 14 verses of chapter 2. But you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be level-headed. Worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed having nothing bad to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. And if we didn't cover that last, if you weren't here last week and you got a problem with that, go back and listen. All people. Instructing us to, de to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to, be, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Father, I come to you today, God, and I ask that you would do what only you can do, God, that as, as, as I preach the word, God, that, that you would use me as a vessel, that you, would, that you would use your word how you see fit, that your Holy Spirit would be present and alive, and that it would change hearts and change lives and change, change eternities, God. We pray it all in your precious precious name amen so real quick uh, this is one of the the letters that Paul wrote to an individual the Apostle Paul uh, wrote several letters almost 
almost half of the, of the New Testament, and he's writing this one to Titus, who he has left behind on his missionary journeys as to be the pastor of the church at Crete, and he's giving him an, uh, examples, and he's giving him advice, and he's giving him instructions on how to lead a church, or what a church should look like, what it's supposed to do. Now, it doesn't talk about everything under the sun, but it, it, but it gives a very clear uh, idea of what it is to follow Jesus and to have a church body and, and to do those things. Uh, when you combine it with the other pastoral epistles and the rest of God's word, it's pretty clear what we're supposed to be doing. But he gives a pretty, pretty straightforward idea of things here in these verses. It's, it's, it's so straightforward that it's easy for us to overlook sometimes, to be perfectly honest. Um, but that, that's kind of the context of where it's talking about here. He's, he's given him the qualifications to look for in elders, and then he goes to, all right, here's what your church should look like. Here's what you should teach them to do, even though it's not fun, and it's more fun to stand up there and say, here's how you be happy. That's not what it's about. Here's what we're supposed to do. So starting there in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Older men are to be level-headed. Yours has a, a different English word, most likely, but to be level-headed. Uh, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. That first word there in the Greek is nephalius. Nephalius, it means to be sober. It means to be temperate, which means to be not a heavy drinker, which is why the, the, the King James uses that word. It says to be temperate. It's, it's abstaining from wine, either entirely or at least from its immoderate use. So it's saying don't be a drunk is what it's saying, if you want to just put it right down to it. Older men are not to be drunks or not to be drunk. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to stand here and say. Take it up with the Lord. He said it. I'm just relaying the message. It says that for us to be sober and temperate and abstaining from wine, worthy of respect and sensible, that word there, sophronos, sensible. It means to be of sound mind, to be sane, to be in one's senses, to not be out of our mind, uh, curbing one's desires, curbing one's impulses. It means to be self-controlled, and many English translations say that, to be self-controlled. It also means to be temperate, so he doubles up on it here. Why? Because we are a thick-headed people. That's why. He has to double up sometimes. Bless you, dude. That was legit. I give that about an eight. That was a good one. Okay, so that's what he starts off with. He starts off with these words, and I want to I dig into these specific words that, he, that show up in each one of these here. If you go to verse 4, comes up again. So they may encourage the younger women, talking about the older women, discipling younger women. It's a perfect time for us to have a child dedication, to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled. The HCSB uh, says self-controlled here in this verse. Same, same translation I've been using that I used for the other verse. Same, this same word is used again in verse 6 when talking about younger men. So, sophronus, it's the same exact word, to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled. Paul, Paul is making a very clear point that those who follow Jesus have been released from sin and are to desire to do the things that the Lord is calling them to do. And it takes discipline to do that. Now, there's another word used for self-control in the uh, gifts of the Spirit in Galatians. It's a, it's a different Greek word. If you go back to chapter 1, when Paul is telling Titus what to look for in an elder, he uses both of the words to be self-controlled and self-controlled to be sober-minded and sober-minded he doubles up uses both words in the Greek and when he's talking about elders yeah I know higher standard it's great it's so much fun to be held to a higher standard it's not fair but it is the way it is moving right along but I skipped over verse 3 and I skipped over it for a reason so he's made it very clear what it should look like to be a follower of Jesus this is what it should be to look like 
And then he kind of says the negative version of it in verse 3. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. We could camp there for a year. Not addicted to much wine. Says it, says it plainly right there. The other is like to be sober, to be temperate, to be clear-headed. But this, this is just saying just flat out, just don't be a drunk. Don't, don't be a drinker. The NIV says it the same way, not addicted to much wine. The King James says, not given to much wine. The ESV says, slaves to much wine. The NASB says the same thing, enslaved to much wine. The NLT, not to be heavy drinkers. The message says, don't be drunks. Because it's the most modern way, modern English translation we have. Careful with it, but it says things funny in entertaining ways sometimes. Don't be a drunk. Why? Because we do dumb things when that happens. That's why. The Greek here, literally, if you, if you read it in the, in the order of the, in the Greek, mere one pollo de dula, de dula, I cannot say that word. I tried all week. De dulomenus. Not to much wine, not to wine, much being enslaved, if you said it in the order of the Greek. Old languages say things backwards from us. We're actually backwards, but they feel backwards to us. To much wine, don't be enslaved. It's interesting to me that that's the word that is used. That's the word that that the HESB translates as addicted. Don't be addicted to something. I think there couldn't be a better definition of what it is to be addicted to anything, to be enslaved to it. It doesn't say don't be addicted. It says don't be enslaved to it. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not, but that's what it is. The, the root word there is dula'a, dula'o, to make a slave of, to reduce to bondage. Isn't, isn't that what addiction is? Any addiction? Isn't that what it is, to, to be made a slave to something, to be held in bondage to something? Random House Publication defines addiction as the state of being enslaved to a habit or practice or to something that is psychologically or physically habit-forming as narcotics to such an extent that its cessation causes severe trauma. It, it's interesting to me that the worldly definition of addiction is the state of being enslaved to a habit or practice or something that is habit forming. Tim Jackson and Jeff Olson, the guys who wrote this article that I pulled a lot of information from in the Discovery series, there says this, and, and they, uh, we just can't stop. They define addiction as this an enslaving, destructive dependency. I was like, yeah, that's it. As succinctly as you can say it, what is addiction? It's an enslaving, destructive dependency. Anybody ever heard of Augustine? A couple of us? All right, some of us paid attention to Western Civ for five seconds. Augustine, he's a philosopher, theologian uh, in the Roman era. He was right when he said this. He said that there is a God-shaped vacuum, a hole in all of us, and our hearts are not at rest until we find our rest in him. We all know what that is. We all have felt that, that lack, that something is missing, that if I just had X, Y, Z, then everything would be okay. It's what the serpent used to deceive Adam and Eve. They had everything they needed, but he said, yeah, but that one thing he said you couldn't have, if you just had it, then you'd be complete. It's what we do. We have this giant-sized sin hole that exposes us to the knowledge of good and evil, and it's devastating to us, this, this, this hole. How, how widespread is the addiction problem in, in, in the United States? If, and, and I'm just talking about, in this case, which we'll get to in a minute, 
just addictive substances, substance abuse, so to say. In 2020, 37.309 million Americans aged 12 and above had used illicit drugs within the past 30 days, according to the National Center for Abuse Statistics. If you've used drugs within the last 30 days, they, con they consider you a current drug user. So 37 million Americans in 2020 were current drug users, and it has done nothing but gone up since. 50%, half of the people 12 and older, have used illicit drugs at least once in their lives. Nearly one million drug overdose deaths have happened in this country alone since the year 2000. Our federal government spends 35 billion, with a B, say billion, billion dollars for drug control efforts annually. The average, huh, the average life expectancy in the United States actually declined between 2015 and 2017 due to opioid overdose deaths. That one thing took the entire nation's life expectancy down for the first time in 50 or 60 years it was that life expectancy had gone down. There, are twice as many, there were twice as many cocaine deaths in the United States in 2016 as compared to the rest of the world. All the cocaine overdose deaths in the world were half as much that had happened here in this country. We've got a problem in our country. It's a problem. In Colorado, the cost of marijuana to taxpayers is nearly $5 for every dollar gained in tax revenue in addition to expenses such as marijuana-related DUIs that cost $25 million in 2016. So you can miss me with that. Well, we should just legalize it and tax it, and that'll fix it. Miss, miss me with that. It's not true. I'm not trying to demonize anyone or anything. I'm just laying out facts. All addiction has at least five signs. All addiction has at least five signs. The first one is absorbing focus. Absorbing focus. They consume time, thought, energy. They're, 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 they're more than just pastimes. It consumes us. Then there's increasing tolerance. It takes more and more and more of it, whatever it is, to maintain the same effect. And then there's growing denial, a denial that it is hurting us or others around us or among us. Then there's damaging consequences. There's no such thing as a harmless addiction. There's no such thing as a harmless addiction. Painful withdrawal is the fifth thing. Anything that gives us an artificial sense of well-being results in pain when it's taken away. There's those five things if you want to see them. If you're using the notes, you can have it. Anything that gives us an artificial sense of well-being results in pain when it's taken away. It leads to angry outbursts, agitation, anxiety, panic attacks, tremors, and depression can all come with withdrawals from whatever it is that we are addicted to. Now, I'm not just talking about drugs and alcohol. That's the easy target. And it's a very destructive target. And it has ruined many lives and many lives of loved ones that we know and love. I lost my own brother to substance abuse. So I know how difficult it is. But I'm not just talking about that because I know some of you are already like, man, I get to sit back and feel good about today. No, you don't. That ain't how I roll. No, you don't. You're part of it too. There's so many things that we can get addicted to. There's so many things that we can put on the shelf of whatever it is that gives us a sense of fulfillment and pleasure and security. Whatever you put on that shelf, you're likely to be addicted to it, whatever it is. But why do we fall for the lure of addiction? 
What, what is it that it promises? What, what is it that we're trying to get away from or to? Because it must be something. There must be something going on in that situation. Why do we fall for the lure of addiction? According to Jackson and Olson, addictions provide predictable relief and power in an unpredictable and painful world. I'm going to say that again. This is why we fall for it. Because addictions provide predictable relief and a sense of power in an unpredictable and painful world. Loss of health, haunted by harm done to others or done to us, hounded by rejection of a parent or a spouse or a friend, it is natural for us to try and relieve the pain that those things bring. Pain and disappointment can lead, uh, leave us feeling guilty, they can leave us feeling disconnected, they can leave us feeling empty, they can leave us feeling alone, and we long for acceptance and love. That's what that hole is inside of you. It's a longing to be accepted and to be loved. And when you try to use something else to fill that hole besides the one thing that's been, that, that, that exists for that to take place to actually fill that hole, it doesn't work. It leads to more pain and more destruction. But our addictions seem to provide a remedy for those things early on. They seem to help us forget the pain, at least for a little while. And again, I'm not only talking about drugs and alcohol. They're widespread and they're destructive, but I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about things that are more socially acceptable, too, that you can be addicted to. But nobody turns their nose up at it. But we turn to those things. Alcoholism, it drowns sorrows. Drug addictions turns lows to highs. Compulsive eating fills our emptiness for a short amount of time. Obsessive work replaces insecurities with a sense of accomplishment and a sense of worth. Sexual addiction mimics adventure and it mimics intimacy and is a dangerous, destructive force in our society right now. These things, they start out as they're, they're a numbing for the pain or the emptiness. But they soon multiply the pains and they make it worse. What we're seeking to, to be numb to or to avoid, it starts a downward cycle. Now we have the pain that we used the addiction to escape, and now on top of that, we have the shame for trusting something so foolish to fix our problem that only made it worse. The shame deadens us even more on the inside, more than the pleasure of the addiction. And this, this whole new problem can arise. We stop feeling pain and start feeling nothing. We don't hurt. We don't feel anything. We just become numb to everything. And the strange thing when you get to that place is, that's way worse than feeling pain. But the addictions, they give us an illusion of control. Control of something that, that seems preferable to the possible pain that is out there in an uncontrollable world. Addictions give what Jackson and Olson call predictable moments that we can count on. An illusion of control appearing to provide predictable doses of relief and power in the midst of pain and helplessness. By refusing to eat or purging what I eat, I'm in control. By stuffing myself with junk, I don't feel empty. By working to get recognition, I feel power instead of helplessness. By making another purchase, woohoo! I get a temporary rush of accomplishment and joy. Mm -hmm, that one hurt, didn't it? I know. 
By placing that bet, I get a rush of excitement. By taking that drug, I'm in control of taking away the pain. But it's a house of cards. It's a house of cards. And deep down, we know it's a house of cards. And the shame just continues to build and build and build. And, we, and, and, we, and what we find out often, too late, is that in exchange for what seemed to be relief and or control, we gained a new master. We have become slave to something we thought we were in charge of. And slaves don't have control over anything. They are controlled by their masters. And this is where it gets really ugly. Inevitably, an addiction will lead you to have to choose between the addiction and those you love. Whatever the addiction is. Inevitably, it will lead you to choose between the addiction and those you love. Well, I'm just working hard to provide for my family. It's not what your kid feels. This creates a cycle, the addictive cycle, and it seems unbreakable. A slave cannot fathom the road to freedom. A slave can't fathom, can't possibly imagine the road to freedom, and it creates this cycle. Addictive activity, dissatisfaction, moral resolve, I'm going to fix it, i got to get better, it's going to be okay, and then the pain returns, and then demand for relief, and then you jump back into the addictive activity. The addiction gives relief. Then I feel shame for the addiction. And then I say, okay, I'll do better. But then inevitably life happens and you feel the pain again or the pain of it being taken away, the withdrawal pain. And then, and then that top one up there, demand for relief, then you, then you start saying, well, you know what? I just deserve it. You know what? This is God's fault. And I deserve what I'm doing. The want, the need that leads us to succumb to addiction is, is not bad. The want that, and the need that we feel, that's not the problem. The desire that we have is connection and its significance and its freedom and its relief from pain. There's nothing wrong with desiring those things. The problem is we're using man-made or man-perverted ways of fulfilling those desires and it just doesn't work. The need can only be filled by God's presence. And, and the more we try and fill with our own abilities that hole, the more we're left being dissatisfied. And then the more we hurt those who love us the most. The more we hurt those we love the most, the most. How can you measure the pain of parents whose child has an eating disorder or a drug addiction, et cetera, et cetera? How can, how can you measure the pain of a child whose parent is an alcoholic and neglects the needs of their child or worse? How, how could we ever fully describe the pain of a wife whose marriage is ruined because her husband compulsively gambled them into financial ruin? Where, where do the waves of consequences stop for a family that has been torn apart by sexual infidelity. It just keeps rippling and rippling and rippling, seemingly never to have an end, the consequences. And when the addict is in this cycle, it just keeps going further and further, further into a downward spiral of pain and suffering for all. The addict, the addict blames everything and everyone around them, consumed by the desire to feel good or to feel numb at any cost. 
And then the rage grows. The addict's rage grows almost and mostly towards God. If he hadn't let what happened happen, I wouldn't be where I am. If he, if he would have just let me, if he just would have stopped her, how could he let this happen to me? I deserve to feel better. I don't deserve to feel this pain. The anger and entitlement and justification for the addiction grows and continues as, lie, as, lives literal, as our lives literally go to hell around us, literally. But the anger feels better than the fear. So it spirals. In all of this, we forget, or maybe you've never known, the one who already bore all of this for you and for me. God the Father made the one, Jesus the Son, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He felt it all. He's felt all of this. He took it all. He can identify with it all. He knows what it feels like to be a sinner and to have that painful hole inside of us. Even though he never actually sinned, he knows what it feels like. He took it all for you and he took it all for me so that we could be blameless before the Father. And this is, this is what he tells his followers. This is what that God tells his followers. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me. Because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You have to give it up. You have to give it up and turn to him for salvation. And then you have to continually give your life to him daily and trust him to provide. Knowing that the now that you're experiencing is not the forever. And the forever is better than this now could ever be. So let's quickly look at seven steps that Jackson and Olson lay out to help move forward from addiction. Whatever that addiction may be, every single one of us are battling one in here today. So don't act like you're not. Let's stop. Take this broken podium piece right here and throw it at you. First thing is you have to admit you need help. The first step is not easy. It's probably the hardest one. It feels almost like death. And spiritually, honestly, that's what it is. That's what's happening. You're dying to self and you're turning to Christ. It is a death. Matthew 10, 39 says, anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. We admit to God we need him. We admit to others we need their help. We depend on God and others to help us recover to a healthy place of independence and rediscover that we do have self-control given to us by the Spirit of God. We can do it, but you first have to say that you need help to do it. You have to learn that pain's not your enemy. Learn to let sorrow bring you to your senses, says Jackson and Olson. Learn to let sorrow bring you to your senses. Healthy grief, excuse me, healthy grief is a necessary thing. Pain is not to be dulled, chemically altered, or avoided. Pain is not to be dulled, chemically altered, or avoided. It is to be felt and allowed us to draw closer to God. And in that, when you do it that way, when you handle it that way, you'll find courage and you'll find hope. And the strangest thing, you'll find joy when you walk through pain with God. It's the weirdest thing you'll probably ever experience. 
When the psalmist faced injustice and unfair hardship, here's what he said in, in Psalm 73. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You made them fall into ruin. Walk through your pain with the Lord. It's not something to be ignored, but something to be explored with Jesus. Third thing, accept responsibility for your choices. You've been wronged. See past it. You've been given unfair circumstances. See past it. You've been dealt an unfair hand. See past it. See past it. You can blame others. You can blame God. But all that does is take the power you've been given to change your reality away from you. You can't control others or God. But you do get to control your decisions. So look to where you went wrong in the situation. Look to where your responsibility is in the situation. There's always responsibility to bear. Look for it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. You made the decisions because you were angry or because you wanted to satisfy your desires or because you wanted relief right then or because you felt vulnerable and you didn't like it or because you decided to protect yourself from whoever or whatever it was at all costs. You made the decisions even at the expense of others. You made the decisions, so take ownership of the decisions. By taking ownership, you experience the freedom that comes with realizing by changing your decisions and your actions, you can change your life. Take ownership. Tell yourself the truth and find that like John tells us in John 8, 32, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to yourself. The truth will set you free. Fourth thing is, see your need for mercy. You now see the light. You need God. You need God to be free from this enslavement. He's empowered you by his spirit to make decisions that lead to life and not to death and not to destruction. Now you must see your need for mercy. You don't just need help. You need undeserved help. So do I. So does every person walking this planet. You experience God's mercy and, you, and find a newfound joy. God's mercy and his grace is what leads to lasting change. Understanding that Jesus didn't die for good people. Because there is not one that is good. No, not one. Healthy people don't need a doctor, Jesus said. But those who know they are sick do. You realize that Jesus grants mercy and grace even to a sinner like you. And you revel in his goodness and you desire repentance. And you realize that the pleasure of your addiction cannot be compared to the mercies of God. He is greater. You can't out sinning. And then because of that, you discover gratitude. All that leads to thankfulness, to gratitude. Oh, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. God's mercy, his love and action, undeserved to you and undeserved to me. Nothing has ever changed anything but God's mercy and grace. You were boldly idolatrous with your addiction. You were boldly idolatrous with it. It was your God and still he relentlessly pursued you, undeterred, and offers you grace and mercy. What a God. <coughs> Excuse me. What a God. And what can separate us from this love? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
Not even death or life or angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You discover gratitude. And in this, there's a deep and profound gratitude when you, when you come to know the mercies of God. And then you find more and more things to be grateful for. You see more and more people and things to be grateful for. But, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 57 tells us. Last two things, I'll go through them quickly. Surrender is a way of life. You realize that. Salvation is a one-time surrender that continues forever. You realize that you have to surrender daily. Some people get a radical, radical saving from their addiction when they come to salvation. <coughs> the vast majority of Christians continue to battle it for the rest of their lives. So if you didn't get a radical delivery from your addiction, don't think there's something wrong with you. You're actually in the larger crowd. You have to daily surrender to that. Daily surrender. Surrender is admitting, realizing, experiencing that you can only find your true pleasure, security, and fulfillment in Jesus. So give it up to him every day. Trust him every single day. And the last one is devote yourself to helping others. That's the final step. You serve. You realize that you need to serve because that's what we're all called to do. We serve each other. 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You can take what is awful and you can use it for something beautiful when you use it to serve others. Whatever you've gone through. It actually makes things make a little more sense when you get to do that. <coughs> Pardon me while I cough my head off. Mm. So I'm going to ask you this. Is there anything in our lives that has become excessive, compulsing, compulsive, or entangling? Is there anything that we feel we can't let go of because it means too much to us? If so, be aware that you are prime for an enslaving, destructive dependency, according to God's word and the research of Jackson and Olson. Be aware. An enslaving, destructive dependency is what I want in my life, said no one ever. We'll finish with these last verses. This is where Paul finished with Titus in our verses today. We have to remember this. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Why? How can you have the strength to do that? Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, you know that eternity is better than anything you're going through right now in this temporary life. You have to keep that focused in your mind every single day. Doubt of yourself. Father, I come to you and I thank you that you are a God that does not give up on us. I thank you that you're a God that loves us no matter what. God, I thank you that, that there is no one that is too far gone, that can't repent and come back to you, God. Lord, I thank you that even as we profess faith in you and, and, and we still stumble, that you don't give up on us, God. I thank you for that today, God. I pray that if someone here is, is, is dealing deeply with this issue, God, that today would be the day that they lay it before you on your altar. They just give it to you. Uh, and that this church would be a church that would, that would come around and serve and love those of us who are struggling with anything like this Lord, in a way that is mighty and powerful, in the way that you designed the church to do. I just pray that that would happen today, God. I pray it 
all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you're getting baptized,